This is Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. We share a more in-depth take on the most popular stories from our print magazine, showcasing the territory's extraordinary people, culture, and outdoors. I'm your host, Karen McCall. It's pretty hard to make a living from trapping these days, but people used to do it. Minnie Clark's family are among them. She grew up on a trap line on the Teslin River. Minnie is part of a story Rhiannon Russell wrote for the winter issue of Yukon North of Ordinary magazine about the state of the fur industry in the north. Minnie now lives about 30 kilometers outside the village of Teslin in southern Yukon. That's where I reached her today to talk about her trapping lifestyle and how she has adapted to the changing demand and culture around fur harvesting and crafting. My name is Minnie Clark, and my clicket name is Kogane. I'm from Teslin, and the Teslin Clinket Council isn't the First Nation that I'm associated with. So you live right now, um, you said 22 miles north of Teslin, but uh, I think you grew up uh, going to your uh, parents' trap line, or did you grow up actually on the trap line full-time? Um, I'll give you just a b- brief history. After the war, my father, he immigrated to Canada from England, And he met my mother on the Teslin River. And two years later, they were married in a little Anglican church in Teslin on a cold January 3rd in 1956. And together they raised five of us kids out on the trap line out at Johnson's Crossing, which is on the Teslin River. And Monday to Friday, we would ride the school bus up to Teslin, which was 30 miles away. And there was no electricity in our home. We had no telephone, no television or running water. We carried our drinking water from the river and uh, we heated our home with firewood. Every evening after dinner and after all the chores were done, we would sit around the kitchen table reading or doing homework by the light of an oil lantern. And dad, he had built us a nice brick fireplace in our living room. And this was especially cozy and warm when it was cold outside. It was a good place to curl up and read a book. And we did a lot of reading when we were growing up. In the winter months, my parents would trap. And they always invited us to come along with them. And we learned the basics of trapping, setting rabbit snares, starting, you know, young Dad would skin out the animals and then he would stretch them out on the wooden stretchers he built. And mom, she would um, home tan a lot of the smaller furs and uh, she would tan those right there in our porch. With like like a chemical process tanning or smoke tanning? Yeah, she used um, she used a lot of cheese in her combination and in her recipes. Oh, really? Yeah. And it was something to do with the enzymes. They break down and I don't know how she did it, but they came out really nice. Mm. And so she would use a lot of those in her sewing crafts. And dad, he loved to oil paint and he was very good at it. So between the trapping, the painting and mom's sewing, they uh had enough money to raise us kids. It was a hard life, but a really good one. And I wouldn't change it for anything. I just love living. (laughs) I loved living out there. And I think that's why I live so close today here. Mm -hmm. So we had a really good 
memorable childhood mm. growing up on the trap line. For people who have never been to a trap line before, can you maybe describe it a bit more? Like how, how long is the trap? Is it a straight line? And is there different cabins along the way? Or do you just kind of go out for the day and back by, is it snowmobile or dog team? Well, back in the day, dad walked the line and they would have a dog. And I think they only had one dog. So the dog would help put the sleigh. But a lot of it was snowshoes. So it was, uh, he'd go out in the mornings and we didn't have outlying cabins or anything at the time. He came home every night. So it was hard work. And our trap line ran up onto Teslin Lake and then down the Teslin River. So it was all walking. Mm -hmm. how, how far was it approximately? Oh, or how long? It was approximately six miles up the lake and maybe six miles down the river. Okay. Maybe so that, a that's a big day of walking. If, a big oh, day yeah. of walking yeah. if you're doing the whole big thing. Day. Yeah. Yeah. Big day. Oh, what, what sorts of animals were, uh, were you trapping? Uh, they trapped wolves, wolverine, lynx, fox, marten, weasel, whatever they could catch. So you collect it over like the winter and spring and then um, tan and prepare the hides and then they would uh, get like shipped off to auction in the spring at some point. Is that how it works? Yeah, they'd ship them off to auction. And how, um, like in those days, did you know what price that they were going to get for them or how, or was it, did it sort of fluctuate? It, it fluctuated. It depended on the market. And in the early days, you know, the fashion industry, they used a lot of fur, but, you know, I think it was probably in the 90s, you know, a lot of the um, uh, celebrities, they got involved in the anti-fur movement and everything. And that had a drastic effect for the people across the North, you know, fur was controversial. So, you know, a lot of people, they had to change with the times. Do you remember that, that, point in time for your family? I did. I remember the good year dad, he had, um, I think he got a, over a thousand dollars for a link pelt and he was quite happy with that. And um, things were good for two years. And then it slowly declined, you know, people weren't using fur anymore, especially south. So like for comparison, how much would one get for a lynx pelt right now? Like approximately? Okay, I actually did some research because I send all my fur out to be tanned. So um, in the last fur auction, I think it would have been spring or summer sale, the top link went for $169. Whereas in good years, my dad got $1,000 or a little over $1,000. So that's a big jump. right? That there. is, that's a huge jump. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So today, okay. you know, I send, I take all my furs into the Trappers Association and Jackie Yacklin, she or manages the place there. She sends it off to be tanned for me. And then once I get it back, I'm able to utilize it with my crafts that I sew. Right. So you, you send it out to be tanned, but you don't send it to auction. So you bring the furs back and, and you um, sell them locally. Yes, I do. Yeah. So what, um, I understand you're quite the, the sewer and beater. What sorts of things do you do with the, the furs? Since my mom passed away, I have been getting into a lot of the sewing and crafting she'd been doing. And um, I was lucky enough to have sewed with her as I was growing up. So I, I had a lot of her patterns. 
So I make moccasins, mucklucks, mittens, hats, and some fancy fur scarves and canvas wraparound slippers. And every bit of the, the fur pelt I try to utilize, whether it's in earrings, bracelet cuffs, pom-poms, nothing goes to waste. And even the bits that I have go back into my pom-poms. So a pom-pom would be full of little scraps. So yeah, I love to sew. So I'm always looking for new patterns to try out. Uh, where do you, do you sell these mostly in the Teslin area or uh, throughout the Yukon? Throughout the Yukon. And um, I take a lot of things into um, unorthodox Duma. She has a nice store in town. And we also, through the Yukon First Nation arts program, we have an online store there and I have sold things there. But most of mine, if I photograph it and put it on Facebook, I usually get a message right away. So I can sell as quick as I make something, I can sell it. Wow. Yeah. I think I heard that you, you made, was it 60 pairs of moccasins one year that you sold at Christmas? Oh yeah. Yeah. It was 60 (laughs) pairs. I just kept taking these orders and then I thought, well, geez, I could do it. And I did it, but oh my God, I sat up for night after night, like way well into two 33 in the morning sewing, but I had girlfriends that came and sewed with me and they were working on their own projects. So I do, I do a lot of uh, teaching around the kitchen table. When I saw um, Rhiannon had written 60 pairs of moccasins afterwards, I was like, oh, maybe I should have double checked that. Maybe you meant 16 because I was like 60 just seems like such a huge number. So that's that's incredible because do you have any estimate of how long it takes you to even make like one pair of moccasins? Well, I'm getting pretty good at it. (laughs) (laughs) I can... um, Probably make a pair of moccasins in two days. Two days. Okay. Yeah. Like, like sort of like full-time two day, um, like several hours, both days, several hours, both days. Yeah. I'm getting pretty fast at it. And once you get it down, you know, it's just a matter of sitting there and uh, putting it together. The beading I find, um, I don't like to bead the same pattern all the time. And with that 60 pairs, almost everyone wanted a fireweed pattern. So (laughs) I got pretty good at it. I could go sit in the truck with my husband driving to Whitehurst and I'd bead one vamp on the way in and one on the way out. Wow. Do you (laughs) do full full beaded tops? Some I do full beaded. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny that fireweed was the the trend of the day. Oh, yeah. Firewood with a bumblebee. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That okay. And the uh, the moccasins are they all made with uh, moose uh, hide? I tr- if I have moose hide, I try to use moose hide. But if not, I've um, I order bison leather in. I find that it's uh, it holds its shape really well, and mm-hmm. it's easy for me to work with. The handicraft items you make, um, mm-hmm. you can you can make a higher value for those than for selling just straight furs to the auction. Like, are you? Can you share sort of a range of of the prices that you sell some of your handiwork for? Um, well, my moccasins, I sell my moccasins for three hundred dollars a pair, and that's what I get. But you know, when you do take them into the store, they add their percentage on. So I noticed. Uh, at some stores, my moccasins are going for 400 And my first scarves, I get $600 to um, $900 per 
per fur scarf, depending how much time you put into it and what it entails. And my fur hats, they go between four fifty, five, six hundred dollars. Yeah, and it depends like what they're made of and how much time and efforts put into everything. Mm-hmm. So. And I know um, moccasin, like three or four hundred dollars for a pair of moccasins, can on the surface seem like a lot, but it's it's not like you're making a bunch of money. Like that's a lot of time and effort and all the different materials that you're putting in. Like that's actually a pretty good deal for for how much work and how much uh, thought goes into those items. Yes, and that was an exercise we did through our symposium. We sat down in groups and we all figured out, you know, your materials, uh, the fur prices of the furry, how much fur you had to use, your time and effort. And we worked it out at, you know, the bottom price was $300. And, you know, like with home canned moose hide, that's really expensive. So, you know, it's when you have it, it's like gold. <laughs> right. Because, uh, yeah, it's a lot oh, yeah, of work. It's a lot to of work. Ten. Yeah. Yeah. Because you go right from the moose being on the ground, you pull the hide, you got to cut all that hair off, you got to grain it. There's a whole process there in just tanning that hide. So, it, it makes a big difference when you order something and you want smoked moose hide. Right. Compared to like a factory tent, you know, I just went to the store and bought this piece for whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a third of the price. Are many people home tanning these days in the Yukon? There is a a big interest in uh, a lot of the girls learning how to do this skill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I learned growing up. It's it's not my favorite thing. I we did it a lot with mom. And then I've tanned one in the past couple of years. And it's a big job. So if I can buy it, I buy it. Because I'd rather be sitting by with my sewing machine, stitching, and then out tanning something. <laughs> What's your favorite uh, fur to work with? My favorite fur is the link pelts. And I like it because I just love how it feels. You know, I make these scarves out of it. And I have a scarf. And I just find it very warm and um, it just shakes out really nice too. Yeah, I guess the different uh, furs all have uh, like a bit of a different uh, feeling, but also different uh, properties. Yeah, I find like the Wolverine, it's nice and it's supposed to be really good in the winter for frost and everything, but I find it kind of rough and I just like soft fur. Mm -hmm. So I like the links. Yeah. Do you have a favorite item that you like to make from any of the furs that you work with? Well, my, my favorite items are the fur scarves. And I've been teaching a lot of the girls close by how to make these fur scarves. And now they're making them and they're selling them. And um, it's nice. And um, I think in order to keep our fur industry alive, we have to get out there and wear our furs and how does it feel when, yeah, you see someone who is wearing something that um, they made or some, someone who you taught, basically, and you see them now either teaching others or wearing the items that they've made? I, I feel pretty proud because I always think my mother taught me and look, my mother's patterns are there in the world. Other people are wearing them and she'd be pleased. 
Have you always enjoyed uh, the sewing and making aspect or is that something you kind of came back to as an adult? I think growing up, we always sewed. Like if we wanted, if we were going, say, on a school field trip and we needed money, well, mom would just bring out the bead can and lay it out and there you go. She'd say, well, earn some money. So (laughs) we'd sew something and then a cousin of mine, her mother had a little store across the river at Johnson's Crossing. It was Jane Goodwin, her craft store. So we'd run over there and sell her whatever we made. So we were taught at a young age, like if you want to have a bit of spending money, you know, you sit down, you sew something, and then you take it over and see Auntie Jane and she'd buy it. And Yeah, it was a good learning lesson. Yeah, learning entrepreneurship skills at, oh, yeah, a, at an early yeah, age. For sure. Time for a short break. We'll be right back. Do you have a Yukon North of Ordinary hoodie yet? What about a t-shirt, a toque, mug? Check out the full product line at the retail store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street across from City Hall. Limited products can also be ordered from northofordinary.com. And while you're there, don't forget to pick up a magazine subscription. And now, back to the episode. So do you still, like, your your family trap line do you still have that in the family yes we still have the trap line my husband and I we um, run it every year and my grandson he's he just turned 14 so last year or last spring he came to Teslin and our neighbor had a trapping course so him and his little cousin they went down by snow machine every morning took the course and they absolutely loved it Neat. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you kind of mentioned it, but growing up on a trap line, there's all sorts of skills that you learned. Of course, beating is one thing, but skinning animals and, and that sort of thing. And those are now skills that you can pass on to your grandson. Yeah. Yeah. A time on the trap line, it was very formative experience for us kids. Our parents were strict. We had a lot of chores to do and manners were foremost. We had a lot of books to read, board games for entertainment. And we were lucky that we both my, our parents loved the arts. Dad had a lot of record albums and we were introduced to music from around the world at a young age. And after dinner, we'd, it was normal. We would gather around the kitchen table with a cup of tea and listen to As It Happens and mm-hmm. just catch up on the news and catch up on what was happening in the family and plans we had to do. And as we were isolated, we were not influenced by the latest trends in urban living. We had no idea what fashion was, you know, as long as we were warm and dry and our bellies were full, that was what was important at the time. And our mother, she sewed most of our clothing and she ensured we were always clean and healthy and happy and It was a difficult lifestyle and it demanded a lot of discipline. Everyone had to participate. And through this, we all grew up with good work ethics. Are there any other sort of things you learned on the trap line? Maybe not hard skills, but soft skills that you were able to take with you in life? Well, I think um, basically what we learned was just how everyone had to chip in and help with chores. We had no running water. So, you know, (laughs) You wanted something washed or you wanted a bath or you wanted to wash your hair. You had to help carry the water in. Dad had a big boiler in the porch and we'd boil our water there in the stove. It had a 
a jacket around the stove so it would boil up all this water and then he'd carry it into the porch and we had a bathtub a tub set down in the living room in front of the fireplace and that was a nice place to sit and have a bath and dad would turn the radio on and every I think we had a bath on Sunday nights and then he'd have the radio on and they usually had a story time and so we'd be in the tub listening to the story and having our bath and the fireplace would be going it was pretty cozy with uh with your siblings did you guys have to fight about who got to use the bath water first oh dad always had um the youngest to the oldest (laughs) (laughs) and then we all had long hair so mom would get us all out and she'd be combing our hair and braiding it and we had these big long flannel pajamas and we'd have our snack and then it was bedtime Hmm, that does sound cozy. So now your your trap line is it's accessible by the Alaska Highway, right? Yes. And I mean that would have been, I guess, the case back in the day when you're growing up there. But of course, there would have been much less traffic, and the road would have been a lot um, rougher then. So yeah, it was it was a lot more remote when you were growing up, I guess. Oh yeah, and like mom and dad would go into Whitehurst for groceries maybe once a month. And then every fall, dad would order a big case lot of food in for the winter. And one of our bedrooms, we had a pantry. So, you know, we had food stock for the winter. Did you have neighbors? Did you see other other people around where you lived? Yes, we lived below Johnson's Crossing Lodge. So we had neighbors there. And we had cousins that lived across the bridge, but they were in the same boat as us. They had no electricity and they grew up on their family trap lines. So we all had similar lives. We talked about it a little bit earlier, how I guess fur kind of went out of fashion um, in the nineties with some of these sort of anti-fur movements developing. Uh, It is still a little bit controversial. And I guess, what do you say to people who sort of have a, a negative stance on trapping? Um, had to think long and hard about this. And um, trapping is controversial. But, you know, it's also a traditional way of life for many of us Yukoners. That's how we were raised back in the day. Many of our parents scratched out a meager living, raising families by trapping and hunting. And they built homes and, you know, as, uh, you know, as things progress, they secured permanent employment. And a lot of times, you know, my dad had to go to away to work and mom was left home raising the family while dad was working. Nowadays, there's plenty of local jobs for those that want to go out to work. Life isn't as hard as it was back in my parents' day. However, a lot of people, they still love to live that urban or that, that lifestyle, trapline lifestyle, and they continue to carry on information sharing you know, for the next generation. And only in the North, you can wear fur anywhere. And it's totally acceptable. You know, when it's 40 below outside, you'll soon see why it's uh, nice to have some fur. Some of that name brand clothing, it just doesn't cut it when it's really cold out. You know, I have a lot of those clothing. But you know, when it's 40 below, I go dig out all my traditional clothing and I'm warm as toast. Yeah, they are warmer, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. They- we, harv- we harvest the furs in a respectful manner, and every bit of it's used in some of our clothing and our crafts. And as Native people, 
we're, we're carrying on these traditions uh, taught to us, and we in turn are expected to pass this knowledge on to our own children. So it's a lifestyle for us. And how does this lifestyle make you feel connected to your uh, Clinket uh, culture? Um, I'll tell you a bit about my grandmother. She was born at Wolf Lake, which is uh, north, uh, east of Tezan there, about 45 air miles out. She was born in 1911. They were semi-nomadic people and they hunted and trapped large sections of land from Teslin to Wolf Lake, all the way over to Quiet Lake, down the Teslin River, and then back over here to Timber Point. And they had a main homestead at Brooks Brook, which is uh, about eight, 10 miles north of us. They had lots of camps and cabins along the area where they trapped and hunted. And uh, my mother, she was born in a wall tent in uh, on the Tesson River. And um, that's where they continued to raise their own family. And I feel close be, by being here and I love this traditional lifestyle. I worked for the Yukon government for 32 years, but you know, as soon as I retired, you know, we moved back out here and I'm just carrying on enjoying this type of a lifestyle, you know. Being on the land makes you think of your 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 family. Oh yes, and Timber Point has a special uh, place in our hearts because my great grandparents they had a, a house here or a cabin here, and uh, in the um, summertime and fall time, this was also known as a gathering place, and a lot of the family would come from Teslin and come from Johnson's Crossing and meet here and. They would berry pick and share fish and traditional foods, whatever, and they'd pick berries. And then when they were done here and wanted to go, they would go up to the South Canal Road and hunt for gophers and other animals up on the mountains there. So I feel close here and this is this is where I come from. How does it feel to be able to introduce now your grandson to these special places and, and to these skills that, that you can pass down? I, I enjoy having him come out and um, well, we plan to pass all our knowledge on to the younger generations by spending time with out on, them out on the land. You know, we hunt, we fish, we trap, we harvest berries. You know, we do try to teach them everything we were taught and teaching respect for our cultural traditions and our way of life you know, will help to ensure that these skills are not forgotten. And you, um, well, we talked a bit about your, your beading, and I know you said you, you maybe uh, teach some friends around that, the kitchen table, and I understand you also maybe teach some, some courses like in, in town as well? Yes. Um, my mom, she taught us at a young age how to use a needle and thread, and she did such beautiful beadwork. And as we grew up, she taught us how to do it. And then as we got a little older, she would get us out helping her flesh and tan her moose hides. It was a really tough job. And she, she just loved the uh, process of tanning. And she always made sure she had a good supply on hand. So she was a good teacher. And she'd always welcome the opportunity to show someone how to bead or stitch a pair of moxes together. And she shared many of her beading supplies and her patterns and her knowledge with anyone that wanted to learn. And many of my patterns today have been passed down 
to her from her mother and her aunties and all her patterns are true to form and everything fits together nicely. She was my mentor. And now as I approach my elder years, I hope to pass these skills to our young people in the community and to a lot of my friends. They come up from Tessan and we'll um, make an evening of just say someone wants to learn how to make a pair of slippers. So we go through, you know, step one through to step 10 and they learn how to bead. They learn how to cut all the materials out. I teach them how to cut the fur and how to put everything together. And it, um, it's been lots of fun. Do you find is the younger generation, are they, are they excited to learn these skills? Oh, yes. Yeah. It's been uh, quite popular in the community of Teslin. The Clinkett Heritage Centre, they've been offering a lot of workshops throughout the year, and they hire a lot of us local artisans to come in and teach. I've uh, been teaching um, classes through the Heritage Centre, and I've been into the Teslin School, and I also taught through the local university. They had an arts program, and I taught there last spring. And uh, so I've been sewing so much. <laughs> my husband, he decided that I needed a place to just go and do my crafts. So we got together with a couple of our boys and they just finished a studio in the backyard. So I've been working there since early spring. And that's where I plan to house a lot of my workshops. So if people want to find out more or see, see your work or find out about your workshops, um, how should they do that? Uh, they can contact me. Um, I'm online. Mm-hmm. To, and we also uh, own Timberpoint Campground. So we haven't had the campground running b- because of COVID. So I do all my crafts now instead of the campground. But, you know, there's places if people want to come out and they have a motor home or a camper, and they want to sit and camp and come learn to sew in the evening. That's good, too. Oh, that, that is kind of, yeah. that is neat. Yeah. What about, and you're also a, a photographer. Um, so, which also helps, I guess, for showing off uh, your beautiful um, items. Um, and you have a, is it an Instagram page where people could check out your photography? I, I just, I, I do have an Instagram page, but I found it uh, really cumbersome keeping two pages updated. Mm. So I just update my Facebook page. Oh, okay. So they can find me under Minnie and Jim Clark. Thank you so much for sharing. It's so fun to to learn about um, that life growing up and the, the things that you're still doing and sewing. And so I know a lot of people will be excited to uh, check out your work. Okay, thank you. That's it for this episode of Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our print magazine by going to northofordinary.com. While you're there, check out Yukon North of Ordinary merchandise. For a full product line, visit the Bricks and Mortar store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street across from City Hall. There's a great selection of hats, stickers, clothing. I love my hoodie. Do you have something you'd like to say about this episode? We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Facebook, North of Ordinary Media. You can also email me, editor at northofordinary.com. And just a reminder, I'm Karen McCall. Thanks to the whole team at North of Ordinary Media. Special thanks to art director Manu Kegenhoff. Our music is by Head Candy and tribeofnoise.com. Thanks for listening. We'll have another episode coming out next week. I hope you listen in.